Simple Fun Session. This is Patrick Lillis, and glad you're listening, glad you're here, glad you're all right, healthy, uh, doing everything you can to take care of yourself during COVID. And um, yeah, we have a new president-elect, which is uh, exciting, actually. It gives me a bit of hope, hope that, you know, we might have a plan for how we can all get back to work in the way that we'd like to get back to work. I know we're all doing uh, stuff now and creating and doing what we can, but uh, yeah, just happy for that, happy for the sense of freedom. I think we all recognized that a couple weeks ago with the celebrating in the streets. Uh, and it'd be nice just to get back to, you know, less noise and more uh, security, I hope. Um, and I, you know, and I have hope. And that's, uh, that's good, actually, <laughs> just the fact of having hope for the future, which is nice. Um, and this week, I talked to my, my friend, uh, Victor Milana Malog, who is a good friend of mine, Victor and I met directing for the MFA dramatic playwriting program at NYU a while ago, at least 20 years, it feels like 20 years ago. Um, and he is now out in California and he moved, um, took a job with Disney and he moved to, that brought him out there. And it was just, it was great in the conversation, you'll hear him talk about it, but the idea of, you know, he took the job for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously you work with a big corporation and there's money and budget and stuff, but he really spoke about it in a very thoughtful way about unboxing himself, you know, getting out of the box that other people perceive. And I I think that's really hard. I mean, right now when I think about the pandemic, it's, uh, you know, any work is work and it's good uh, to have. But it, it's really bold to take the step to do things so that people will think about you in a different way. You know, you start doing new plays, you start doing new, new play development, new new works and you know and you're you're working in these bringing them to life in this 99 seat theater and you know you you're doing great work but how do you get the people to take that work the lower budget and be able to say like oh that was great i bet they could do it at the highest budget and it's a hard challenge not because people don't value the work but because they start to think like oh that's what you do that's what you're great at and um and it was interesting because i thought talking to Victor and he talks about it, but it was interesting to get not only change the external perception, but to change the perception of yourself. Like what can you do that's different? And I think that that's the goal, right? To change how you think about yourself. Um, and I, I it'll, it's a great conversation. Victor's a very funny and very, he's very thoughtful and, and has a great, as a director, uh, and he became a playwright also has a, I find him very thorough. I find him very thoughtful. I, find, I, I think he's a, a great guy. He's also very funny and, and humble. Um, and I thought what was interesting in our conversation was that idea of changing how we think about ourselves, finding what skills we need. And, you know, he did that very actively about seven years ago. And I think we're all doing that now. And it encourages me to think that, like, right, we're doing that. It's a good thing to do. And yeah, we're being forced to do it, but um, but it's probably a good muscle for us to start to think about how do we want to be perceived? What do we want to do? What do we want to change the perception of ourselves? What are we capable of that we didn't think we were capable of? And how can we 
you know, expand that vision of ourselves for ourselves. And as I think of, you know, as I continue on with the bullpen session during this strange time, you know, it's not only about building a career and building the next steps, but it's thinking about how do I create and how do I create the way in which I want to create that also generates the reality that I want to live in? You know, at what, what level do, we want, do I want to be working at? What, who do I want to be collaborating with? Um, who do I want to partner with in the future and should know about my work? And how do I want them to see me? All that stuff. Uh, I think it's an opportunity to do that now. And our my conversation with Victor, uh, it's a treat. And talked about that and a lot more uh, about how he got to where he is. And, and I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed it. And I hope you will too. And with that, play ball. I did listen to one of the interviews. I loved the conversation you had with Rajiv just, just because, you know, I, I know both of you and uh, it was just a lovely conversation. So I know a little bit about uh, the format and, um, and I was like, does mine have to be that good? You don't, no, no, he, you know, he, you don't, no. nobody can compete just with Rajiv Kaur alone. <laughs> it's too hard to compete. I, mean, it's I, was, I was like, it's a shame that it's a podcast because people should see that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, do I need to buy pomade? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm in Berkeley, California, just north side of Berkeley, about five minute walk from Berkeley Rep, 30 minute via BART train to ACT where my wife works. And we've been here, I don't know when the last time that I talked to you, probably when I was in New York. Maybe we had an email or something. Yeah. But that was uh, we left we left New York very quickly at the bottom of 2015. So it's been almost five years here. 2015. Wow. And is that did you what brought you out? Did the Disney gig bring you out there? Uh, the Disney gig brought me out there. That's right. So at the bottom of 2015, um, I I was recruited out to go to Disney and be one of their show directors, which means that you create and direct shows for the Disneyland, uh, for the live parks. And I was based at Disneyland. And, um, and you create sp shows specifically for that time, well, for that, um, for that property, but also you begin to ideate for projects around the country and the world. So that's what brought us there. And it was huge, you know, it made my gut churn because it was such um, an unbelievable move after 20 years in New York and to go back into uh, to the West Coast where I come from, but down to the Southern part and not know anybody really. And, you know, some maybe driving cars uh, was a whole new landscape. Uh, but, you know, we've all made those big moves before we just go, you know, what, what the heck have I gotten myself into? Yeah, well, it's a big move. Actually, I'm glad we're starting with it because it, it's, it is a big move. And I think like I'm thinking about the pandemic right now, right? And we're all sort of redefining how we interact with the art, who we are, what we do. And how was that in 2015? Because then you also went from, I would imagine, freelance directing to, I mean, you had a home, you had a, you had a, I, my observation from the outside is you had a bunch of homes but you were also freelance directing. And then all of a sudden you, you're working for the, one of the biggest entertainment homes there is. And that's gotta be a different life completely. 
It was a radical shift for me. I I'd had uh, homes just like at NYU where I first met you to develop these young artists. I had arts education homes. I had 2G, the Asian American theater company, you know, where I'd worked in, in, in a, a slew of other places, including the Lark and whatnot. So it was actually uh, not only structurally a big change to go under the large, largest entertainment brand in the world, but a heart-wrenching move to go from these personal relationships to something that had like 200 acres and also to go from, uh, let's say, my laptop where I was running this off-off-Broadway company to millions of dollars. It was, it was really huge. And, and also at the same time, it's something that I needed because I felt some people had put me in a box, even though I'd chosen to be working in sort of uh, smaller theaters and having these intimate relationships. Some people thought all I could do was 99-seat theaters. All I, you know, the budgets that I could have were only a couple of thousand dollars. And so for me, it was a, a great opportunity just to go, you know what, let's unbox myself and, and uh, show myself and, you know, whatever naysayers there might be out there to go that this sort of uh, the storytelling and the relationships and even aesthetic differences that I've done in the projects that I've been able to mount all add up to something that could be uh, on the world stage. And so that, that was the big sort of personal and professional challenge. And, you know, of course, I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to learn. My first project three weeks in had a budget of $2 million. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I had uh, just a lot of asking to do and uh, certainly sometimes egg on face. But but so happy that we made the move out, though we miss New York quite a bit. I love that you say that because I think people start to box people in totally unconsciously, just like that's the level you work, so that's the level you work. Even though, you know, if you're working in the 99-seat black box with the thousand, couple of thousand, tens of thousands of dollars budget and doing great work, you're probably capable of so much more, but people start to say like, oh, that's what he does. That's what that person does. And changing people's minds is freaking hard. Um, how did the recruitment happen when you, did they find you? Did you have somebody reach out to them? Well, I had started a conversation a couple of years before uh, meeting some of the creatives there because I was just interested in what, what does it mean to work at a spectacular level? You know, the level of spectacle and, you know, fireworks and parades and things like that. It's always sort of been a dream of mine. Uh, I grew up watching pro wrestling. So all of that eye candy, you know, crowd roaring stuff, it's right up my alley. And so I thought, well, how, how do we wow a crowd? And, you know, can I, can I get in on this game? Uh, so I just took a couple of meetings and just kept the relationship going. And, you know, I applied when they announced it. And so it was a, it was honestly something that uh, a big process that I'd never really been through before. I found out that there were 400 international applicants and folks from all sorts of different uh, walks of life, you know, from the museum world, from like theme park world, theater, et cetera. So, yeah, was I nervous going through the process? Yeah, absolutely. Did I not know what I was getting myself into? Absolutely. I mean, I like roller coasters. I've been to Disneyland. I've seen a couple of movies, but I really didn't know what it meant to be part of a company that had such beloved characters and stories and sort of IP that, you know, people really knew about. 
um, I was used to telling stories where they were very intimate and powerful stories for the theater. But oftentimes I'd had to do like a, you know, a 12 hour explanation of the project I was doing. While in this case, you have to go Spider-Man, Mickey Mouse, Star Wars. And, it, you know, uh, and they so got it. <laughs> it, it was a, a shift. Anyway, yeah, they got it. And, you know, my parents finally thought, said they, they stopped saying, hey, you know, you should get your MBA. They, they thought, OK, finally, the kid, the kid's OK. <laughs> I also like that you like later found out there were 400 international candidates because uh, I have this thing. I'm like, I don't want to know who's competing. But I think if I knew there were 400 people, I might get overwhelmed. I'm like, how many people are up for this job? There's got to oh, be just absolutely. Fun. Anytime I find out like what the numbers are for the competition, the competition is like the the amount of the imposter syndrome comes in. Like you know the when we talk about like people boxing us in in a certain way, it's really the conversation I'm having with myself around me boxing myself in. Like oh, I shouldn't be in a 99 seat house. I should be in a 25 seat house, right? It's, like, it's all about a weird self talk when you, when you start to find this stuff out. And so sometimes, you know, what I've been doing the last, gosh, maybe five, six, seven years is I've been trying to claim that naivete and that sort of like gutsiness that I had when I was in my early 20s, where I just went for something. Because what ended up happening as I got a little bit older is I, you know, as we all do, we start to know a little too much. We want to put as many guardrails up as possible so we don't skin our knees. And so in, you know, right around like my early uh, 40s, late 30s, I just wanted to be able to, you know, skin my knees again and really get in there, get dirty, get go to places where I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, uh, jump off some sort of, you know, life cliff and like move beyond uh, the vision of the life that I thought I w had to lead or I, the way that I thought would be the, 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 the path for me and just sort of go, go that way. And it's sort of advice that I've been giving students, but I'll tell you what, Patrick, I wasn't taking it for myself. You know, I could be that great sort of life coach and I could, I could be like that great coach, but never, not never, but really sort of minimize some of my own risk. No, and so I get that's it. the that's sort of that's, yeah, you get it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a challenge. That's that's honestly why uh, I've been doing some some stuff like that in the last couple of years. Uh, I've been scared out of my mind. There's been so many things I haven't known, but you know, uh, I've, I've relied on the the many years of experience of like building teams, the amazing collaborators, and uh, also the, the the knowledge that you know how to tell a story. And we can scale that up or down and, you know, enough humility to ask for help. When you talk about asking for help, it's very funny because I totally identify, like, when you're starting out, you take all these risks. You know, you're like, I can do anything. And then you sort of know how the business works and you know who it is. And then you get, you know, I think working for a large corporation helps you that way, too. But you start to have to, to get to the next level. You have to ask for help. And I'd love to just ask, like, what that's like for you or what that means when you said ask for help. It's funny. I'm actually, I'm, I'm in the, I feel like I have spurts, like, every five years where I'm, like, you know, the Rocky music plays. And I'm, like, championing myself a little bit. And then I go back to falling into the habit. And then another five years, it comes out. You know, right now, I'm sort of in that moment of, like, oh, right, I have this thing that I want to be big. So I'm going to push for it. I'm going to ask people. And it always makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that I think 
that's the path, right? And any any growth opportunity for us is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be odd. It's going to be incredibly. It's going to be ego busting on a lot of different levels. Um, you know, I I could say that me and uh, a bunch of my friends are. I mean, so many of my friends are also self-made. And so uh, a lot of us have sort of banged out this life together, you know? And, and I know you, you've had your own great successes, Patrick, and I know you've fought really hard for them. And so I think for me, I, I had a really hard time asking for help because I didn't have people, you know, review my papers. I didn't want them to see the, the holes in, in my thinking or, you know, I, I wanted to have all these mistakes, you know, in my own sort of dark, dark, secret, selfish place um, because I didn't want this, uh, I didn't want to sort of reveal that I, I, um, I didn't know a bunch of stuff. I didn't, that, and that, that I had gaps in thinking, I didn't have depth of thought about certain things. I just didn't want to reveal that. I feel like, you know, walking around with my pants down. It's just weird. And I, it took me a really long time. And so when I talk to students now, I just say, please, whoever's in this room with you, you have an essay, please share with them the rough draft. <laughs> please share with them the edits. Do what that, you know, do all of those steps now so you don't have to be an old dude like me, you know, you know begging for help. Because you, you know, you've spent a couple decades trying to put on some sort of vision of mere perfection, or you know, or just some bravado, and so um, it's still very hard today. But I'll tell you what, I think on my own, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty sharp. I can learn things. But with collaboration and some feedback and some probably some pretty like hard truths, I can be, I can be great. And that's what I that's what I've learned. I think that's sometimes why I haven't gone to a next level before, because I didn't I wasn't opening myself up for the necessary feedback. You know, my my ego is too big to go through that door. And so it's you know I, I wish I could say that I learned this you know very quickly. And <laughs> uh, no, it took me a really long time. I I, I wrestled with the idea of help or uh, even mentorship. Um, because I thought I could do it alone. And the truth is, you know, there's folks like you, Patrick, but the way I've met you years ago at NYU, but now you've built up the, the farm program. People grow together and they can really uh, can be partners in, in a feedback process, in a growth process, even just support. And, and, I think, uh, and I think it's taken me a while to learn that, but I've learned it and I've learned it the hard way. And, uh, you know, you know, for, for the listeners out there, all, all they can do is just like fill in all the things I'm not saying, all the like the avalanche of embarrassing stories I'm not saying right now. What you said about being good is really interesting to me because that is the barrier, right? Like, well, I can, I can, at this level with this room, I can fool certain people, you know, <laughs> on how much I know, but I want to get into that other room. So if I want to get into that other room, I probably have to ask somebody who knows who's been there before, and I have to admit that I might not know something. And I don't know about that that vulnerability. And it's like you said, it's ego. It's like that willingness to grow. And it is the thing you tell your students or like the farm is early career artists and, you know, wherever they are, they're not necessarily students they're pursuing, but you're like, yeah, just ask for help. 
and be bold and go for what you want. And of course, later in life, you're like, yeah, just do it, Patrick. Just ask for help and go for what you want. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I still do it every day. Every day I still go, well, all right, I, I don't quite know how to do this. Is there a template that you can share with me? Is there a, uh, is there a, a, something that's not written in here that I should know about? Is there something unsaid about the situation that I need to know about? And then, so I, I come in, um, it's okay to be in a way like lower status, you know, even if one is in, in the role of the director or the leader, because uh, I think it's just, just taking me further and also the collaborations are deeper and they just know I'm not just some like um, some person just trying to parachute in and do the big show, you know, which is, you know, um, sometimes just a one shot deal. And then because there's no trust built, you know, even in terms of just what the relationship is. So, so it's been beneficial on a lot of levels in terms of relationship building, but also my own, really my own um, enrichment and, you know, and more in a more simple way, my own survival. Yeah. Um, well, I want you to talk about survival, but I'm really, it's interesting to think that because I went and I, you know, I, I do know you from years ago and knowing that you're great at what you do and a very, in my mind, it's interesting to hear you talk about wanting, needing help because you need to know something because it's, I've always thought, oh, there's Victor. He's knows he's very knowledgeable, very put together, very professional, very prepared. When I went to look at your website to think, all right, what don't I know? All of a sudden, I saw all these musicals in that world, and uh, and I thought, oh, that's a different. That's not the 99 seat. You know, that's not the new play development. That's a whole other level that I didn't know. I didn't. I actually didn't know that about you. I mean, I I don't think people know that I have that part of my world as well. I don't think that's what they think about. And uh, and I was really excited because it didn't sur it it surprised me because of how I think of them. But then when I was looking at the images of those pr productions, I thought that doesn't surprise me. It feels like you um, from what I was looking at. But I'm wondering if that was a stretch or if that was how, how did that part of the world happen for you? How did you go from new play development to also established Americana musical? It's actually the reverse. It's actually the reverse. I mean. You, you know, I have a bunch of like, I, I thought for a while in like my back pocket were like these dirty secrets, right? <laughs> and because I wanted to be considered a world-class, you know, my aspiration was and is to be a world-class theater maker, right? Um, to be up there with the dramatic greats. And, you know, uh, for someone who was doing productions of Annie, and productions of Greece at community theaters and productions of A Christmas Carol, the musical version. Uh, um, my, my CV before I met you was very, very limited. It was very limited um, because in a way I was sort of caught up on what like the American show business was. And then I, I somehow didn't also find myself in that template. Like, though I loved it, I, I grew up on Sound of Music, West Side Story, South Pacific, all these great, you know, soaring musicals. I was, I was in the very beginning of my career just trying to emulate them. But really, I mean, the pretext to all the new play development and to where I am today is that I was trying to be a copycat. I was trying to be a copycat with these shows in terms of how does a guy like Victor who was born in the Philippines, raised during a period 
of like martial law, moving to the United States, having this sort of like uh, outsider status in the San Francisco Bay Area. How does he then try to, you know, portray himself as this all-American musical theater guy? And all I could do was copycat. And you know what? It, it just was like that weird idea of I was trying to do these musicals that were a photocopy of the musicals that people already seen, and I was doing it with some success, but really oddly like that that weird um it's soulless is not the right word it's just a bit more drab it's like trying to reach for something that people already knew and experienced instead of like infusing it with like my own joy and my own sort of take on it and so you know to be honest i i i started getting burned out because people were like what are you doing in this musical theater realm you're not doing it right and so i thought i need to find my own voice. I need to actually not try to literally like sing and dance like everybody else. And then I went into new play development and trying to understand and enrich myself with different stories, different production styles. So I wasn't just a mimic, basically. Uh, so that's how it started. I, I started off in the world of musical theater, you know, with university productions and then community theater productions, all that were just trying to be whatever I saw before. And then at some point, uh, there was like, I did a big production where people were just not enjoying it, frankly, like thousands of people not clapping, uh, <laughs> which is like, which is really hard to do with some musical theater. And I was like, I have to find a way into this thing that I love. And, and the, I think the best way might be to go away from it for a while and just enrich myself uh, through Shakespeare, poetry, a bunch of these other things that I never was raised with. So talk about an excursion into like lands and plays that I didn't know and language I couldn't understand. That's what I did. And it was rough for a while, honestly, because I was around like folks like yourself who were like so smart and have like this sort of like body of knowledge and people could speak with real depth around O'Neill and, and, you know, Beckett. And I was like, where am I? Where am I? I am, I shouldn't even be in this conversation because I barely know what you're talking about. And it was a very frightening time. Oh, I, I like, uh, hearing that because I, I think I might may have known you did it before, but I didn't certainly remember it looking it up. And I, that courage, I had a moment like that. It's very funny. I had a moment of, it's different, but I had a moment of working regionally and, and doing directing a national tour of a musical and then being regional and, and, uh, and realizing like, oh, I'm not, it's not that I wasn't putting my artistry into my voice into the work, but I realized like, oh, this isn't satisfying me you know, and I want to get back. And that's actually why I want to do new play development primarily uh, is because I, not because I didn't have a voice as a director. I didn't think that that's what I would find, but it was like, oh, I wanted that partnership, that collaboration, and I wanted to be building something from the beginning, you know, and I, but hearing, oh, you, hearing you that, that, yeah, that authenticity is like, knowing, having that moment of reckoning of like realizing like, oh, that's not satisfying. Because there's always satisfying at first. It's always exciting to get a job, and it's always exciting to create something. And then there's a moment where you can, where you feel like, oh, I can be my own. I need to be my own artist in the room. Doesn't mean not collaborating, but I need to do what's true to me, you know, and that I don't. And, have yeah, I found my I found my work and my ideas incredibly like shallow, right? Like basically, I was just looking up how anyone else did it, how anyone else besides me would have done it. 
And I mean, maybe that's how a lot of people start. Maybe that's how they, you know, I think when I started acting in like um, grade school, high school, I wanted to act like Michael J. Fox. So everything that I, you know, everything looked like Back to the Future, whatever, whatever my high school productions were uh, as an actor. But so I mean, that sense of just like mimicry and carbon copy is something that I, that I sort of know about, you know, I know that that can be a, a crutch for many of us. Just like, where do you start? And then, and then at some point you go, well, I guess this is it. This is, this is the, 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 the farthest, the, the furthest reaches of, of like what I can do with this thing. And, um, and then you have to go to like, take a leap. And, uh, and I, I wasn't sure I was going to make it because it was, it was incredibly, uh, incredibly new waters for me. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I was always curious about where my place was in, in the, the in American theater, you know, besides being like a, a high school star, like, but because everyone was a high school star. <laughs> well, am I right on this? Did you go, you went to NYU, but you didn't go to the study acting, right? You went to Gallatin. Am I right on I that? went to the Gallatins. And what, how, how come, because it's interesting to hear you think about you being a high school star, and the next step is going, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go specifically into a conservatory or study acting. I'm going to... I mean, this is, this is going to be... It's confusing to me, so I know it's probably going to be confusing <laughs> to you. Uh, um, basically, what happened after high school, uh, I went to New York. Now, this is just a little timeline thing. If, we, if I put us back in a, time, in a time machine, right after high school, I left for New York with uh, my then-girlfriend. And to you know to to try and see what New York would be, uh, just a few weeks after uh, high school, about six weeks, and you know, and do what what that was for me really was a bunch of part time jobs, uh, working at the Blockbuster and the Gap, and, and you know, trying to audition for shows. Um, but after that, I, I went back to California, and I started to have some success. This after about a year, I, I had some success. Um, working in children's tours, directing uh, these musical productions, had some success. And at some particular point, at age 22, I thought my luck was going to run out. I thought, oh, man, people are going to know that I know nothing about the theater, except, that, you know, I know how to put on the music, man, damn Yankees. I know how to do make the, the lights dance a little bit. So it's like this it's in a sleight of hand. Um, but they're going to find out that I am just, I, I, I am, I'm like, I'm like Harold Hill in the music, man. Like, I'm just going, yeah, you want magic? I got magic. But I, not much else beyond that. Not much schooling, not much reading. And so I thought, well, I better go to NYU before, before they find me out. And I had uh, applied to Tisch School of the Arts and last minute, I had pulled my application because I was really interested in, and again, in that leap to go beyond what I already knew in my comfort levels, not just to acting. And I was interested in the experimental theater wing. I was interested in Playwrights Horizons, all of that stuff. I mean, that stuff was like, okay, give me more of it. But then I thought, let me go to Gallatin because it's a bunch, it's, it's a school based in great books, you know, and so everything, no matter what you studied, had to be rooted in classic work. And I thought, well, there's a bunch of books I never would want to read. 
So now's the time for me to understand the ideas of anthropology or Wittgenstein or, you know, or uh, the Panishads. I didn't know what all these books were, by the way, but I just thought, let me go to that crazy school and put these seemingly disparate parts together because I know if, if, if I don't do it now, uh, I will just make, I would just take the easy choices for myself. So I threw myself into Galton school and I studied um, international leadership. I studied structures of leadership from Churchill to Gandhi to uh, just even uh, negotiation skills. I was interested in that. And then also paired that by taking classes in performance studies at, uh, at, uh, at NYU with Richard Schechner, which basically is an anthropological approach to uh, performance around the world. All of which was all of this, the whole thing that I'm talking about was one big, new, giant, scary thing for me. And uh, that's why I went there. And, you know, I have some, some classes, uh, Patrick. I, I had, like, wonderful A's. Some classes, oh, I, you, just really, you don't want to see it in my transcript. Some of them are just, uh, just disastrous. And I was sort of banging around in this new uh, uncharted area for myself. But it's given me a lot of skills to put things together and, um, and try things and, and actually go probe in a sort of intellectual um, and sort of in a way kamikaze way because I, I know sort of the, the net of intellect and connectivity is sort of are some of the skills that I've developed during that time. Cool. Yeah. And I, I, love, I love that program because you put things together. You know, you can put your own major together, your own discipline and I and I, it's funny I couldn't remember but I loved reading the idea of leadership because I think you know also when you talked earlier about collaboration and being in the room and asking for help and saying you don't know something and collaboration makes it better I actually think ultimately that's what great leadership is too is willing to say I don't know and how do I get everyone involved in solving this problem um, it's pretty pretty cool and I also love hearing that you put yourself in these positions where you don't know things so you can go to the next level. You know, I think it sounds, sounds like you're willing to do that. And, uh, and that's the adventure. When, what, what's the thing that happened? What do you think happened in your trajectory in your career that made you feel like, Oh, I can get to the, I'm at the next step or I got to the next step. I mean, it, the Disney thing seems like, that's a life changing moment of getting the job there, but it's, but, but is there something before that that made you feel like, Oh, I'm going to work. I'm, I now am not going to get found out as somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. I actually have a sense. People do know. I do know what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I don't know if that, if that feeling has ever left me, Patrick. Um, so <laughs> I can't vouch for that. Uh. <laughs> I love talking to you because it's, there's this great sense that I have of you, Victor, where I'm like, you're really confident. And at the same time, we share a very similar headspace, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it's, I, I've also learned that doubt is useful. You know, the idea of doubt is useful. As you know, it's, it's what helps us revise, you know, uh, reject ideas, even, you know, rework our own sort of personal structures. The only, the only thing I think about doubt, and I think when we talk about the headspace, I'm, I think about 
just, Victor, just be careful that doubt doesn't move to 51% and might totally drown me. So that's, that's what I wrestle with because I actually think doubt and that the sense of vulnerability is useful if it's not a component that drowns me. And there's been times where it has drowned me and I haven't put myself forward. Um, so, so I appreciate you saying that. It, uh, I, I, I revel in it because I think it is an asset, right? It also just keeps me grounded and uh, just open to a bunch more ideas. Right, instead of like being completely solid on like this is the only way to go. Um, but to your question of like when was a time that I, I thought I was on my way? So after uh, I decided not to work in community theater anymore and doing these musicals because I thought, well, what am I doing? This is, um, there's a template they want from me that I, I realize with who I am and my experiences aren't aren't necessarily going to be uh, the things that I deliver. And so I, I decided to step away from like, these safeties of the, the musical theater world and these, and, um, and these shows, and I got a, a fellowship, a Van Leer directing fellowship at Second Stage. And suddenly I was in the world that I had only really read about. Second Stage Theater Off-Broadway had these fellowships for young directors that put them in assistantships with um, my first, with like legendary writers and directors. So my first one was with Mark Lamos directing uh, a revival of Edward Albee's Tiny Alice. And, and, you know, and I knew a little bit about each one of them, but not enough to, to be so frightened. I think if I knew who these gods of the theater were, I would have really, like, you know, wet myself. Because people, when they auditioned and met both Mark and Edward, you know, they were, they were, they were bowing. And, of course, I, I did not know enough. I knew a little bit. Uh, so it, it sort of kept me in the room and not being too scared of, of, uh, of that sort of large, largeness. Um, that's that's what changed my life. I it it brought me into these rooms where I thought, oh, I I can I can sit in a in a space with Mark and Edward Albee, and um, not that I I'm equal to them, but but uh, I remember Edward specifically Edward Albee specifically just talking to me in just sort of the kindest way, and it showed me that I didn't have to put on all these you know, I don't know what, you know, what would be like a Hollywood style director, like whatever airs I thought like I had seen in movies, like, or, you know, Orson Welles or you, you name it. And suddenly it was just, you know, these wonderful artists working, you know, they, they had lunch, they put on their pants the same way that as I did. And it changed my life. Yeah. Just that idea, right. Of being in the same room and, and, and understanding that you belong. How'd you get, did you have a connection as second stage before applying? No, I did not. I did not. I, I think, I, I think um, it was one of those fellowships where I just said, I'm ready to really learn. And they said, okay, well, here you go. And uh, I didn't even know to the magnitude of the opportunity that I was being given uh, that first year. You know, and then the very next year, I was uh, assistant director to Mary Zimmerman on Metamorphosis. And so even the aesthetic range that I had in the two years that I was there was 
was incredible. Um, but you're right that 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 I was uh, allowed to be you know and welcomed into that sort of like very professional high level space um, as a young director as a person who looks the way that I do is a is a very significant thing for uh, my career. Yeah, I think I think that belonging and it's a lot of things like you said the humanity the humanness of it to see that like oh they eat their lunch and they put on their pants one leg at a time and all that is funny the I, I second person I assisted was Mark and uh, I learned just an immense amount from him and yeah I'm sort of grateful not to have recognized the status of who he was at the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's a blessing sometimes um but yeah and, 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 and but you're right and you're in the room and all of a sudden you get to you can you mean both of those projects are amazing that you worked on and you're you get a sense of belonging and it's the you know what i used to say when i first came to new york the doors of like those institutions always seem so big and heavy like you know and they, they become a little more right-sized because you become a little more right-sized it's like oh we all belong you get a sense of belonging and one thing that uh, scott ellingworth who teaches at nyu grad acting talked for the farm and one of the things he said was you know we get this sense you don't recognize that you're already part of a community when you're early on and it's those moments when you start to feel like oh i'm in i've entered into it i'm not on top of it i'm not the pyramid wise i'm not on the top but i'm in it i'm in the community and i belong here and i think that's probably the most affirming thing that can happen besides learning you know how to manage a room and direct yeah yeah it, it was an incredible opportunity just to to go oh so this is a place that i can be and you're absolutely right. Uh, that that sort of mindset moved me away from uh, uh, from other spaces where where I thought were this was the only you know where I thought this is the only place I could be. You know, I I can't be in the big rooms. I can't be. Uh, I have no uh, contributions to a conversation. And that and that was the, the big pivot point for me, which was not just where do I belong or in the American theater. It started to engage me in what contributions might I be able to make in theater? Which I know is such a simple question of like what an artist is. But suddenly I thought, oh, so I, I'm here, so now what? What's this time and this opportunity about? You saying, and somebody who looks like me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess besides you being very handsome, that uh, Filipino is part of what you meant to that statement. Yes. Right? And uh, it, it, is that what you meant? Just so I don't put words in your mouth. I, I did. Yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Patrick, for saying I'm handsome, and and also, also I, I want the listeners to know that I'm also very, very tall. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but but yeah, I'm yeah, I'm Filipino, and there's you know when I started, there just weren't a lot of people who looked like me, and you know when I went off to New York City, right after high school, my my parents you know said good luck, but I knew in their bellies. They knew that this was a difficult path, especially in theater, especially the way that casting was and the way the stories were being told. So, um, yeah, you're right on, you know, you're right on about that. It, it, it's interesting because I like that you said it, that it, that it, you know, thinking like, oh, I can be in the room. And then, I don't know how to ask this because I know you're the, you were the artistic director of 2G and, I, and but I am curious, how does that inform, because how does that inform 
your voice? How does that inform you in how you pursue the work? How does that inform you in what you're teaching the next next up? Like any way you want to talk about it, because I think especially at this point in in our theater time, you know, we talk about, you know, BIPOC, there's part of me that you know, just wants to hear like, how does it inform you to find your voice that way? And another thing I need to say is, uh, you know, I just, the farm does a lot of work with college collaboration projects with colleges and just actually in August had a workshop and there was a young Filipino student who's like looking for playwrights, you know, and I thought, right. And I thought in my head, I'm like, okay, I know three, so I better do some work you know, that can that represent her voice so that she could play somebody authentic to her. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think it is, it's really obviously representation is important, but I'm curious, just when you said it, like, what did it mean? And how does it shape your interaction in the art? I'll, I'll try to make this as simple as I can. <laughs> when, when I'll I was, ask you that little question. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Patrick. For <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, always like conversation with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I first directed in San Francisco, uh, I think I was like age 21. This was my first professional gig. And I was talking and I was on a radio interview and the, and the interviewer asked, hey, Victor, I, I know you're directing this piece, but you're also an actor, uh, which I was at the time. And they're like, do you have any challenges as a, an Asian actor. And I responded, I think probably very naively and maybe aspirationally. I said, no, I have no problems. I have no problems being cast in any of these plays. But, but of course, at that point at age 20, I had real, no real experience of being kicked around, you know, going in audition lines and seeing the catalog of works that were out there. Um, and so I say that too, because that meant uh, my younger self walked around with blinders. I didn't, I wasn't doing the numbers. I didn't see uh, when there were things that were limiting to me or excluded me. I sort of, I just sort of went ahead thinking, you know, as one does, like when they're on a mission, perhaps, you go, this, yes, you're right. This is the right way. This, this works for me. There is a place for me in the American theater. There's a place for me at the table, and there are plays for me to to be in and to do. And then, as what's happened recently, and in the in the last you know several years, we've done the counting, and it's the numbers are very difficult. Um, so when I went to 2G, second generation Asian American uh, new play incubator, it was really it was really for me to to immerse myself in things that I had not participated in, to understand a bit more about myself and connect with amazing Asian artists and sort of build relationships and perhaps even bridges to, to other theaters because I've been able to work at Second Stage and other organizations. So for me, it was both a deep learning, but also a chance to try to, to help the community in which I had not really participated in so in a way, that, that wasn't, again, a jump into a, a, a different ocean of brand new. And it totally changed me in terms of, in terms of uh, understanding the industry's appetite for some of the work. It was the first time that I realized that um, some theaters just didn't care for 
Asian American work. It, it was like they, you know, no need for this, no need for this slot. You know, we have the one slot or we're, we're not feeling like this Asian play now. And it was striking to me because it's not the, the culturally specific theater is not where I started. I started mainstream theater, the musicals and these plays. So, you know, it's sort of like all the slots were open, I felt. But suddenly, since I was part of this new play generator, generating company, um, the doors suddenly were closed or they're just very limited. And so I, I, I really have been trying to figure out different ways to lift up those voices, you know, through the, through the theater and also just you know, how to get people published, how to make some introductions and things like that. Um, but it's, it's very clear to me um, that the, the taste or appetite for some of the work is, is so limited and that reflects back on what's on our stage, but also reflects back to the, the finances of the artists trying to create the work and how do they sustain a life in the theater. And when you say the appetite, because I don't know if that's, are we talking about main, major, predominantly white institutions when you talk about the appetite? Yeah, the, the folks who can give commissions and give you full runs with all the sets and the trimmings and the, and the marketing. Right. Uh, sometimes when this happens, it's predominantly white theaters. They're put in second stages where the fees are much lower. You know, they're 99 seats. They're not in the 500 seat house. There's all those other things. And that also involves, you know, the health and the pension of the artists who are put in, in the, the lower tiered houses. Um, so it's not only a taste thing, it's an economic uh, framework around it. And so, um, that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to be able to to work at a large level like uh, the Disney company so I can help you know create projects for different artists at a scale that uh, that uh, had not been permitted before. Good. Yeah, it's a good answer because I, I hate the fact that about the it's true that I think the, the you know in that awareness of the second stage versus the 500 seat stage and the and how that affects pension and health and all the inequity that that generates. Um, I'm going to make a leap, but I'm curious about you turning to playwriting because I think what's interesting is you got to put, you, you created an opportunity to put your, somebody who's like you on stage and tell your experience and make make sure that that happened but i didn't you were a director when you got the opportunity right how did that come about getting the opportunity to write the play and and how was that for you to be able to to really be tell a story you wanted to tell that's authentic rich shiomi who is one of the founders of theater move a large asian american theater in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, has given opportunities to so many people, uh, you know, starting out as actors and writers. And he partnered up with the Jerome Foundation, um, and they had a grant program that was bringing uh, folks who are not full-time playwrights into the playwriting field. So you could be an actor, you could be a musician, poet. Uh, I, in this case, was a director. And he said, Victor, would this be interesting to you? And I said, um, I, I paused <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, I, I would love this opportunity 
to write a story about a, a young boy who, who sees life through the pro wrestling lens. But more, but more than that, it was really an opportunity for me to see what it's like to, to try on those shoes. Because it's, it's, it's so easy to be someone in the directing seat or the commissioning seat, the, 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 the gatekeeper seat, and say, hey, on Thursday, you better, you know, that family drama that's, that's destroying you as you, as you turn over all the, you know, the events of the play. Could you have that? Could you have that uh, in, please? You know, uh, and, and I didn't really have any knowledge of what it took to bring some of these stories forward. And so I, I'd run playwriting workshops with students. I'd commission plays. But I'd never put myself in the shoes of someone who actually had to deliver something that really meant something to them. And now I can say to you, I don't know if my play taught the, the Hulk Hogan play, the untold story of a spectacular Filipino Hulk Hogan. I don't know if that was good, but I'll tell you what I got out of it. I, I got some understanding around the difficulty of writing a play. You know, the, the, you know when the page is blank, when the tears are coming, uh, or when I just don't want to face a character or a situation. That's what it did for me. And so I think it, it bolstered my, my love and respect for, for those who do it all the time. Um, that's my big takeaway. Uh, and I want to do it again. But I just, you know, I had to sort of recover from like, what the heck was that? <laughs> like, that's, that's a mountain to climb. And I sort of took it for granted for, for so long. Uh, because I've worked with so many wonderful writers who, who just push themselves to the nth degree, and, uh, but I had never really understood the cost. Yeah, I, I love your answer because I taught at NYU. I taught in the playwriting program for three years, and then I wrote my first play. And my empathy for the writers shifted so dramatically because before I was writing, I was teaching in theory, you know, of like, well, here's how a play is made, here's what you need to do, here, you know, and then I was like, you know, all of a sudden, year four, I'm like, listen, if you can't get 10 pages, I understand, I couldn't get 10 lines yesterday, you know, <laughs> it's a different, <laughs> it's such a different experience having gone through that, like you said, putting yourself onto that, that through that process, and uh, and, and I think it's good. And you're right. You get it. You sit in the gate. If you're in the gatekeeper position, it's better to it's better to understand with empathy, you know, what what the people are who you're going to collaborate with, and the artist, and what they actually need, which is, you know, kind of different for everyone, you know. Yeah, and yeah, and it, it sometimes it's just a great great works or great scenes that it's just sometimes there's a barrier there that I never. I had never really thought before of like, what does it mean to have to birth this most, you know, if it means something to the writer, which for the most part it, it does. What does it mean to have to go through the thing that's in the way it, to get it on paper, to go through whatever, whatever imaginative or personal space they have to go through. I, I have such, um, you know, lots of pain, lots of gain. Yeah. Um, on the pain and gain, I'm going to be respectful. So I'm going to ask two questions. What, what is, what are you doing in the pandemic? And I know you're teaching. So 
I guess I want to ask, like, how is your artistry? How are you treating yourself? How's it coming? That's a great question. Um, depends on the day. You know, some days I think I'm like up and peppy, but and then, and then I think I truly am. And then some days I think I'm probably playing a little bit of a charade with myself. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but overall, you know, we're we're good here, and uh, um, I'll be. I'm teaching now, so it's it just that sense of energy that I get from the students and that sort of back and forth uh, is, you know, gives me gives gives me uh, this sense of like purpose and uh, and and I think that that especially at this time when people are exploring what it means to to be an artist, to explore whatever the complexities are of this world, or even just self expansion, right? Um, that that is that's a plus for me. Uh, I think if I didn't have some of that, uh, I you know who knows I could be up uh, in some darker place. But uh, I'm okay today. If uh, if that's the question, we're pretty good. Yeah, today. that is the question, and I think you're right. Here you say it like just the hope, the hope of it gives you hope to work with other people and especially the younger people. You know, it's like right, we're building something that's going to be in the future. That's right. Okay. That's. And uh, just so I don't get off without asking, do you have any advice? You would, we've, we shared a lot, actually. It was really great conversation. But if, but since I send that question in advance, in case there was any thought about it, I want to make sure to ask. Um, I, I think the advice that I always, listen, we've, we've known each other almost 20 years or maybe 20 years now, Patrick. Yeah. And I think that's my advice. My advice is that we have the group, you know, whoever people, you know, whatever young artist is listening out there, their group of actor friends, their director friends, that's the group. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, I, I need to make an astral leap and I need to, you know, hang out with, I don't know, whoever's the most famous, you know, Hugh Jackman. I, you know, Hugh Jackman and me have to do something. But the real answer is, you know, Patrick's in the room. Uh, Rajiv Joseph was in that class. You know, Rajiv tells me that we worked together on his first piece. And, you know, whoever else was there. And so uh, that's advice that I take, which is like, you know, take care of who's in your circle and your group now and nurture and support uh, that group. And uh, you never know where folks are going to go. Uh, I didn't expect to have this conversation with you 20 years ago and to see the program that you built through the farm. It's been incredible. Victor, so good to talk to you. And um, it's funny, at one point we got very, asked a very serious question about, you know, how, how he sees identity playing the role in his work and I, and how he carries himself. And I just, I just like the idea of claiming it and taking up space. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I think that's important and it's important to, for all of, you know, when I think about when I was talking about at the beginning about, you know, unboxing yourself, which Victor talked really well, so smartly about and actually put into practice in his life. It's that idea of like claiming 
how you want to be seen. And sometimes, like him, he's like going to Disney and working with much larger budgets and making mistakes, and and go, but also going into the world where you don't know, right, and not. And, and knowing that you're not going to know something, but you're going to learn so that you can grow, so that you can remove the limitations, so that you can do the work you want to do. And the other thing I love and I f is recognizing that the people around you are your community and the community you're growing with today or you've been working with for 30 years is your community. And, you know, we keep striving I say we, sometimes we look at success from outside. We look at success thinking like, oh, I want to work at that place with those people. And it's good to recognize that you may work at that place, but you might work with that at that place in the future with these people, the people who are around you now. You know, Victor mentioned Rajiv and, uh, and you know, and listed a couple of other people, myself, and, you know, who we've all been working together for or known each other for a while. And I think... Yeah, you're going up with the community around you. And I see that online. I see when people are working. Think about in this pandemic and the shutdown, those are the people who you're doing the work with. Those are the people who already know you. So you're continuing to build things and they're helping to not only for you to grow and for you to support and for you to create opportunities to generate work, but that work is building an awareness outside because you're doing the work. And I just... Uh, it was just a great appreciation for community and the people who are around us and just know that that's the long term, you know, so not only support your tribe, but find them, find the, find the people who share your values because you're, because we're building a life together and you're going to build one in the arts and theater in, and you're going to stay connected throughout this journey together. And even if you go in different paths, you will continue to be, in relationship and supporting and just to trust that and it's funny I often want to say like look for the most talented people and you know and try to work with them and you know and keep moving forward in your own work so that you continue to grow but recognize that your 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 community that you're working with is going to keep growing with you and that's the it's an incredible support for a, a lifetime of work and I'm saying that because uh, I thought it was great when I talked to Victor to hear that and, and remember it and think, as I think about my desire for community, you know, how much I want to go out and go to a play and connect with people and see them in person, that I am grateful for the community and the foundation of community I have now because those are the people I'm reaching out to, they're the ones I'm working on projects with online, and those are the ones I'm seeing doing different things. And so I'm grateful to have that foundation during this period of you know, shut down. And on that, I, I also wanted to just say thanks to everybody who saw Amy's play at Hillsbury Community College, who saw it streaming. Um, it was great to see a live play, to see a play with scene changes and music and live people on stage and a play that could be done fully socially distanced. And I, I, I look forward to that play continuing to happen. And I look forward to people figuring out ways to fully produce theater in a way that feels like theater. Uh, you know, all people in a, in a space going through an experience together. It was really affirming. So with that, thank you and uh, stay well. And, you know, I'm going to say what I say. If you, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with people. You know, go to iTunes, rate it. The five-star rating helps people find it. And um, 
and mostly also email us. Email us, tell us what you're doing. You can email me directly at padrick at thefarmtheater.org and let us know what projects we should uh, be aware of and happy to support and promote in some way and also any you know anything you'd like to hear us talk about or would like uh, to know about because uh, really finding this as an opportunity to be in conversation with you and you know we're all in it together this community so uh, thank you have a good week and with that we're out Thank you.